everybody. How are you doing this morning? Glad you're here with us uh, on this wonderful Father's Day. Uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 11. If you have them, if not, you should find one to use in one of the chair racks around you. Matthew chapter 11, New Testament. Uh, as most of you know, uh, we've been in a teaching series exploring the idea of establishing spiritual habits that uh, can help shape our lives and deepen our walk with God. And if you're a guest with us today, just so you know, uh, we've addressed certain classic habits like prayer and fasting and, and, and confession and silence and solitude and simplicity. And if you missed any of them, I encourage you to go online and listen. I think you'll find them helpful. But from the very beginning of the study, we've defined spiritual habits as activities we engage in that repeatedly bring us back to God and facilitate spiritual health and spiritual growth. And over that time, the more that I've thought about it, the more I've come to realize that the one thing that can inhibit uh, and or actually destroy any or all the benefits that these habits produce in our lives is pride. If you recall, way back when we started the series, we noted how pride is incredibly destructive. I mean, it's, it's, it's a potential problem for anyone who takes spiritual growth seriously. Because in our, in our sinful humanness, the very moment we, we, we begin to pursue true godliness, we're suddenly tempted to question why others aren't doing the same. Why aren't they as passionate and virtuous and committed and disciplined and, and godly and spiritually minded as we are? And before we know it, we begin to measure ourselves against one another using these habits, these disciplines as proof of our own piety and spiritual superiority. Uh, St. John of the Cross was a uh, 16th century Spanish reformer, theologian, and he, he wrote about this. He said, he said you know, when new believer, a new believer becomes aware of their own fe- uh, fever and diligence in their spiritual works and devotional exercises, this prosperity of theirs gives rise to a secret pride. Uh, pride. They conceive a certain satisfaction in the contemplation of their works and of themselves. They condemn others in their heart when they see that others are not devout in their way. And he's right. And so as we end the series today, I want to I emphasize that on their own, spiritual habits will not lead any of us to spiritual greatness if they're not exercised with genuine humility. And spiritual greatness is something that we, we all should aspire to, you know, not... not Not greatness as defined by our culture, but greatness as defined by God. The question is, how does God define greatness? And interestingly enough, that's not hard to figure out. Uh, Here's why. There's only one instance in the New Testament where Jesus refers to someone as great. In fact, not only does he say the individual is great, but he says they were the greatest person in history, which to me is a pretty big deal. Uh, It happened one day when Jesus was talking to a big crowd uh, crowd of people. He's talking about a guy named John who happened to be his cousin. And at the time, most people in Israel referred to John uh, as John the Washer, or literally John the Washing Man, because he went around uh, inviting men and women to repent from sin and, and in the custom of ancient Judaism be publicly, ceremonially washed, in the Greek term baptized, that's what that word means. It means to be ceremonially washed as a symbol of their repentance and their cleansing and their start of a new life. And so a lot of people knew John, they were familiar with who he was, what he was doing, And when Jesus talked about him here in Matthew 11, this is what he said. He said, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the washing man, the Baptist. And that's an incredible statement. The term we translate great comes from the Greek term megas. It's where we get our word mega. It's a comparative term. It it means huge, big, significant, uh, someone or someone of prominence. So essentially Jesus says, John the washing man or John the Baptist is the greatest person who's ever been born. 
No one in history is better. He is a mega human being. He is the greatest. Now, there are two options with that. You know, maybe Jesus was just blowing smoke. You know, maybe he was just overstating things to make a point. Or maybe he was trying to, for some reason, kiss up to John. Or maybe it was a nepotistic deal, you know, because John was his cousin. And if any of those things, uh, if any of that's the case, then the statement um, really means little. But if Jesus was serious, then it's a whole other deal. And I'm confident Jesus was serious. You know, whenever Jesus started off saying, I tell you the truth, not only was he trying to get people's attention, but he was, it was his way of letting those around him know, hey, you better listen to what I'm about to say. It's crucial. Don't miss it. Listen carefully. And that's what Jesus does here. He says, listen carefully. It's, this is important. I'm telling you the truth. John is the greatest human being who's ever lived. And then he adds this. He says, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So here's my, here's my Ray K translation of that. John, he's saying, John is the greatest so far, greatest person so far, but in my kingdom, even the lowliest person can, can find significance because God is no respecter of persons. Everything John is or John was, you can be as well, even greater. What Jesus doesn't do, however, is explain what made John rise to that level of greatness attributed to him. So in order to understand that, we need to take a look at John's life. And there's not a ton of information on him. There are no books that are dedicated to him. But John is mentioned in all four Gospels in the New Testament, all four biographies of Jesus, as well as being mentioned in other extra-biblical first-century historical documents. Uh, So I reviewed the information that we have available to us. And we know, for example, that John practiced some of the spiritual habits that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, prayer, fasting, solitude, silence, simplicity. But there are some other things about John, along with those, that, that, that seems to me made him great in the eyes of God. Uh, for one, John was acutely aware of his mission in life. I mean, if you know anything about uh, his family history, it was quite unique. Luke uh, records his background. Uh, his parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who had been childless. Zechariah was a priest in Jerusalem. He was a godly guy, a man of faith. And one day he was chosen for the high, the high honor of going into the most sacred space in the temple alone to offer incense before God on behalf of the people. It was a really big deal. It was only, uh, could only be done once in a priest's lifetime, so not everybody got to do it. It was a very intimidating task, because if it was done with a bad attitude or performed incorrectly, the priest might not come out alive, which is what happened to the sons of Aaron back in Leviticus, Leviticus in the Old Testament. So it was an exciting, for Zechariah, it was an exciting, honorable, uh, risky, priestly privilege, and he did it. And he went in all by himself to the holy sacred place in the temple, and there he encounters an angel. And he's paralyzed with fear. And the angel says this to him, Do not be afraid. Your wife is going to have a son. And you're going to name him John, and he will prepare Israel for the coming of the Lord. Uh, you know, his mission is to point people to the Messiah, the Christ. So long story short, John comes out, he tells the story, uh, what happened to him, and it all turns out just the way the angel said. Elizabeth gets pregnant. Uh, nine months later, the son is born. They name him John. And right from the start of the kid's life, Zachariah made it very clear his son's mission, what it was. He says, he says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So to summarize, Zechariah says, son, 
you are going to point people to the Messiah, the coming Christ, the coming Savior. And so John grew, grew up uh, understanding exactly what his mission uh, in life was, and so he went about fulfilling it. You know, and I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if someone would come to us early in life and clearly articulate our mission? You know, someone would come and tell us exactly what God uh, wants us to do with our time, our energy, our abilities, our resources, our entire life. You know, Ray, your life is to be all about this. You know, so many people today uh, in our culture struggle uh, with the question of, of meaning, of direction, of purpose, and, and, and mission in life, not knowing what it is. Even within the context of the church, when we talk about life, we, we tend to talk about it in terms of careers, as if they are our ultimate purpose for existence. If we're asked about it, you know, we're good at synthesizing, you know, what, what do we do? Well, I'm an accountant, I'm a pastor, I'm a coach, I'm a real estate agent, I'm a writer, I'm an editor, I'm a, I'm a manager, a salesperson, a marketer, a homemaker, a carpenter, an archivist, a, a custodian, a teacher, I mean, you, you name it, right? Whatever. When it comes to career, we know what the answer is, how to articulate it, but what about God's call on our lives? If I ask you, what has God called you to do, you know, how would you respond? Again, some of us might just immediately fall back and give the career answer. God's called me to be a computer analyst. No, that's, 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 that's the opportunity you've been given uh, to earn a living. The question is, what has God called you to do with your life? Oh, okay, uh, well, uh, as a Christian, I'm called to be a good, a good uh, husband, wife, good friend, good father, good parent, good son, daughter, person, aunt, uncle, whatever. That's true as well, but it's not specific. As a follower of Jesus, what has God called you specifically to do with your life? In simple terms, what is your God-given mission? See, I think our mission is essentially the same as John's, to point people to Messiah, to, to the Christ, to the Savior, deity in the flesh, who came uh, into this world offering forgiveness of sin and guiding us graciously to life everlasting. You know, through our work, through our relationships, through our, our words, our generosity, our love, through everything that we do 24-7, our lives are meant to accomplish that mission. Our existence is not about career, it's about call, a call to point people to the Savior Jesus. And, and by the way, that's, that's not my opinion. That's what Jesus himself said to his followers. He said to them, go, and as you go through life, be my witnesses. Tell people about me in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your communities, in your region, and throughout the world. So when it comes to life mission, John knew his, man. He knew it, and he was all about fulfilling it. And he went about fulfilling it with personal authenticity. I mean, there's no debating. John was a piece of work. Uh, we know from reading in Matthew 3, for example, the dude lived out in the wilderness by himself most of the time. He, he had his own unique fashion taste. He wore clothes made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate bugs and honey. I mean, he never cut his hair. He never cut his beard. He was more like John the wild man than anything else. And um, in fact, if John walked into any average Christian church in America today, he'd stand out like a sore thumb. And he'd get a lot of dirty looks and criticized and considered unspiritual for his choice of dress and his hairstyle and heaven forbid if he got up to say anything. Well, interestingly enough, that's the way it was for John in his own day. He didn't fit into the existing temple mold. 
The religious experts of first, first century Israel, you know, they dressed in these elegant styles and they ate rich foods and they were clean and well-groomed all the time. They always looked good in terms of outward appearance and they made themselves, you know, kind of a show out in public because somewhere along the line, the religious community came to believe that, that God was impressed with that kind of superficial stuff. And the one thing that John's life tells us is that's just not true. Jesus called him the greatest person who's ever lived, yet John didn't conform to the, to the preferences and the self-righteous standards of others. He, did, he wasn't squashed by religious peer pressure or tradition. I mean, understand, average men and women of John's day, just like in America today, average men and women believed in God and they, they were longing to connect with him in a real way, but they, couldn't, they just couldn't live up to the elaborate rules and regulations and traditions imposed on them by the religious elite. They were tired of it. They were tired of the self-righteous phoniness and the, 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 the spiritual exclusivity. And they were worn out and beaten down by the burden of what organized Judaism had become and, and the guilt that it inflicted on everybody because no one could measure up. Religion was crushing people. And then they see John, this guy John. He was different, man. He was a little weird. He was unique, he, but he was real. He was true to who God made him. And that kind of genuineness, that kind of personal authenticity attracted people. You know, they wanted to hear what this buggy-eating guy had to say. And, you know, and, and the thing with John was he never beat around the bush because John was, he was committed to, to truth over tradition. His message about human brokenness and rebellion and sin and need for repentance and mercy and forgiveness and grace, the message of the coming Messiah and Savior was never compromised or watered down just to please the crowd. In our culture, you know, many of the many of our most public figures and leaders uh, in government and you know in religious circles even are defined by opinion polls and ratings. Their words are directed by what, what's popular and what's politically expedient. Their goal is to avoid offending anyone. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not suggesting John was out there intentionally making enemies or you know, inter- hurting people's feelings or ignoring their sensitivities. John was simply out speaking the truth. He was intent on being biblically correct, not p- politically correct. And often what he had to say um, to the elite, it was hard for them to hear because sometimes that's the way it is. You know, truth hurts. For example, according to Matthew 3, one day uh, as John was washing people, symbolically washing people, some of the religious experts show up. And, and John essentially says to them, I'll just give you sort of my Ray K translation. John essentially says, hey, what are you guys doing here? You, get, you know, you guys are like a bunch of snakes slithering down here to the river. Do you really think a little water on your scales is going to make a difference? It's your heart, it's your life, it's what's on the inside that has to change, not your skin. And don't think that you can pull rank by claiming to be a child of Abraham, because you know, being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Israelites are a dime a dozen. What matters to God is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it just goes on the fire. John says, I'm washing people who are serious, as a symbol, who are serious about turning from the old life to a new kingdom life and publicly acknowledging that for people to see. In fact, the real action, John says, is just about to happen because the one who's coming after me, he is more powerful than I am. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to take off his sneakers. I mean, he's coming to ignite kingdom life by the power of the Spirit, and he will determine what is genuine and what is not what is real, what is false, and whatever is false will be put out with the trash to be burned. 
How do you think that went over with the religious crowd? Probably not, not real well. I don't think it was readily accepted. Yet, on the basis of truth, John was willing to challenge the religious status quo. And on top of that, there was all this political stuff going on. It was, at the time, it was common knowledge that Herod, who was ruler of Israel, had just left his first wife and stole his brother's Philip's wife and, 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 and took her as his own. And, and John spoke out against that. John said, look, that's just wrong. That's messed up. It doesn't matter if you're the king or not the king. That kind of immoral behavior goes against what God says is right and true and good and healthy. On top of that, there, there, well, first of all, just know that these, these statements that John made, these forceful statements uh, that he made about public figures, religious and, and, and political, um, he, he did make them, and, and he was strong about them, but most of the time he spoke with gentleness and empathy to the people, the average people that he really cared about and he knew God cared about. And, and I, I don't think Jesus would have called him great if he was out there just being uh, belligerent, you know, just being obnoxious. Because he wasn't. He was simply committed to living and speaking the truth without apology. And frankly, John was genuinely humble about it all. According to Luke, uh, as his reputation grew, some, some people came to John and said, hey, are you the guy? Are you the Christ? Are you the, the anointed one the scriptures talk about? Are you the Messiah? And John said, no, I'm not, I'm not the guy. I'm here to tell you that he's coming and to point him out to you. It's not me. And if you think about that for a second, Think, think, about how, think about what it would be like to, to, to gain all this attention, this big following of people, you know, to get national recognition, get your face on the front page of the Jerusalem Times, whatever, get, a, you know, get applauded like a first century rock star, have people swooning over you, coming to you as a leader and saying, man, you are awesome, you know, just we're willing to follow you no matter what. Think how easy it would have been for John to kind of dig the accolades, man, and, and believe the press and say, hey, you know, you're right, I'm, I am the guy, it's, it's about me. But he doesn't do that. Here is the person Jesus said was a mega human being, the greatest ever born, getting all this attention. And what does this famous long hair, bug-eating, honey-sipping, weird-dressed desert dweller do? He downplays himself. Before... Um, before Jesus arrives, he says, the one who's coming after me is more powerful than me. I'm not worthy to untie his sneakers, his sandals. And then when Jesus shows up, he says, look, here he is. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me, alluding to Jesus' deity. My Ray K. translation. He says, this is the guy, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior, the eternal Lord, deity in the flesh, Jesus, who graciously forgives sin and grants life everlasting. He is who you follow, he is who you worship, he is who you serve, not me. Later on, as Jesus' ministry began to expand, some of John's friend, friends come to John and say, you know, now, look, everybody's going to Jesus now. And John responds, he said, I told you guys. I'm not the Christ, Jesus is. And here's my favorite statement in the New Testament that I think summarizes what the nature of Christian living should be. John says this, he must increase, Jesus. He must become greater, I must become less. 
Now you talk about humility, man. John, John had no sense of arrogance or entitlement. He knew his place. He knew his role. He understood the world didn't revolve around him. He recognized that his job was to promote Jesus, not himself. And because of John's genuine humility, John was low maintenance. He didn't demand or expect special treatment from God or from anybody else. Now, generally speaking, that's not the way it works in our world, right? For most of us. Because in our world, you know, leaders, the celebrities, the successful men and women, they tend to, they tend to adopt an attitude of entitlement. They expect to be treated differently from everybody and anybody else, and they often are. I mean, they get, they get the recognition. They get the fancy suites. They get the chauffeured limos or picture in the paper, the first class seating. They, they get pampered. And the more they do, the more they want it, the more they expect it. But here's the reality. If we're honest, we'll just admit that as human beings, it's something we, we all want down deep inside. We all want to be pampered. We all want to be treated special. We do. Why? Because we all struggle with this deep notion of self-importance, this sinfully inflated opinion of ourselves, that I should be treated better than you. I deserve better than you. I expect better than you from others and from God. It's part of our human DNA. A small expression of this is, uh, I was in a doctor's office a couple weeks ago, and you go to the doctor's office, you've got to sit in the waiting room. And I'm thinking, I shouldn't be waiting for anything. Who am I to wait? Although they call it the waiting room, so it's pretty much going to happen, right? It is the waiting room. So it's created for waiting, and so you're sitting in there, and you're looking at your, you know, there are other people, and you're looking at a magazine, but you're not really reading it. You're kind of looking at everybody trying to figure out what kind of funky thing they have going for them. You know, and you're thinking, they can't be as sick as me. I deserve to get, and then when they come in, they call somebody else's name, you start getting mad. Like, I deserve to go first here. Do they not know who I am? Do they not know that I am sick? That I need to get to the doctor? And then when they call your name, you, you kind of, you know, kind of get straight. Yeah, that's right. They call me. Not you. Not you. I mean, we want to be first. We want to be special. We want to be treated that way. It's part of who we are. It gets expressed in a lot of areas of life. But here's the deal. If I think I deserve pampering and special treatment, how should the guy Jesus said was the greatest human being ever, how should he be treated? Pretty special, I'm thinking. But do you know what happened to John? First of all, he got tossed in prison. Remember how he spoke out against Herod dumping his first wife and stealing his brother's wife? Well, Herod didn't appreciate that. He, he was personally embarrassed by it, and he didn't like being embarrassed, and there were some other political issues at play that put Herod at risk. Herod's first wife uh, was a Nabataean princess. The Nabataeans lived in northern, uh, northern Arabia, southern Jordan. They were the ones who built Petra uh, into the rocks of the mountains there, and, and uh, he married their, their princess, and Herod was concerned that the Nabataeans are going to get upset and try to get revenge for divorcing the princess. And maybe they're going to attack me. And so the last thing he needed was that to be out and about. And the last thing he needed was this internal uprising caused by John publicly pointing out his moral corruption. In fact, Flavius Josephus was a first century historian. He was actually Jewish, but he kind of wrote for the Romans. He became a Roman citizen. He wrote a number of books about the history of, of the time. And, and keep in mind, these are real people, real events. So Flavius Josephus, a Roman citizen, he writes this in the book Antiquities, book 18. He says this about John. He said, Herod feared that the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything John should advise. So he thought it best to prevent any mischief and difficulty to arrest John. So out of Herod's suspicious temper, John was sent as a prisoner to Machaerus. 
Machaerus is a hilltop fortress on the east side of, uh, of the Dead Sea. Uh, here's a picture of it. It's up on a mountain. You can see the, barely see the Dead Sea in the background. Israel's on the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, Herod would load his boats and the, these, basically these just flat boats with all of his people and friends. And they'd all float over and they'd go to Machaerus and they'd hang out and they'd re- retreat there from all the people. And he had a jail there, he had a prison there. And uh, I was there a few years ago and there's not much else going on there. So they had this place. It was kind of this party place. And uh, they, he puts John in prison here. While in prison, John's humanness comes out, and he kind of wrestles with doubt. And some of his friends came to see him, and, and, and John says, go back to Jesus and just ask him, are you sure you are who I think you are? And so they went back, and Jesus said, you go back and you tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Good news is preached to the poor. I am Messiah. I am the Savior. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I am personally comforted by the fact that the greatest guy ever wrestled with doubt, because I know what that's like. And, uh, you know, Jesus, are you who you say you are? And I know what that, that's like. And John, John was a normal human being who, who he needed assurance. He needed a boost in his faith, and he gets it. What John doesn't get from Jesus is that Jesus doesn't spring him out of prison. He remains there. In other words, the greatest guy ever suffers. And that's not all. After sending John to prison, Herod throws his big party at Machaerus, and at the party, according to Matthew, he is seduced by his stepdaughter, and, and, and Salome, and he promises to give her whatever she asks, and she's prompted by her mom, and so she asks John, uh, or Herod for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod has John killed. The greatest guy ever goes to jail, dies at the word of a teenage girl and the whim of a morally corrupt king. Never whines, never complains, demands that Jesus come and bail him out. Injustice, imprisonment, suffering, execution. That's what happens to the greatest guy who ever lived, John. And I'll tell you right now, I'm uncomfortable with the end of that story. Very uncomfortable with it because because my initial thinking is that, well, the greatest deserves special treatment, right? Right? I mean, John did everything he was asked to do. Couldn't God reward him, throw him a bone, release him from prison? Sure. If you think about it, in one way God did not release or reward John, but in another way God did, because this wasn't the end of of John's story. His death in prison initiated his life in heaven. But understand, John, John never felt entitled to special treatment. He served humbly. He served faithfully. Without complaint, he was low maintenance. He really was. So here is the practical question for us. Are we low maintenance? Am I? I've been in ministry 25 years, and so often i got to tell you that as Christians uh, in the church, we want to be the best. We want to view ourselves as spiritually mature, and yet at the same time we can have such an incredible sense of entitlement and over the years, I've encountered men and women who consider, consider themselves and present themselves as Christians of great maturity, but who turn out to be the whiniest, neediest, most demanding, complaining people around. And if things don't go exactly their way, the way they want it, they're not happy, they let everybody know it. And it's just not, the, this is not about the church. I mean, understand, sometimes this deserving attitude gets applied to God. And when life gets challenging, and hard and confusing, we expect God to bail us out. We're entitled to it. And if it doesn't happen, we get angry with him because we deserve it. We deserve better. 
And here's what really blows me away about this whole expectant, entitled attitude deal. There are some churches and there's some branches of Christianity that say, that says, faith leads to wealth and health. If you have enough faith, you should have both. Really? Go tell John in prison that. Go tell the greatest guy who's ever lived, Jesus said, ever lived, that he deserves better. You know what John would say? No, I don't. And the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I'm a leader, the longer I study Scripture, I look at the, the lives of God, godly men and women, the more I strive to establish spiritual habits, the more I am convinced that spiritually, true spiritually mature people are low maintenance in, the, in God's economy. High maintenance people, demanding, needy, critical, entitled, are not as mature as they think. They're not. Like John, spiritually mature Christians humbly, faithfully serve God with the time, with the resources, the opportunities they've been given. And while there are moments of doubt and there are moments of fear, there are moments of difficulty, even pain, they realize that perfection in this broken world is unrealistic. And here's the, here's the toughest lesson I've been learning over the years. I am not God's gift to the world. And neither are you. <laughs> Jesus is. And so he must become greater. I must, we must become less. Is that how we operate most of the time? I got to tell you, it's not, for me, no. I've got a long way to go with it. But here's a really cool thing. Jesus said, as, as great as John was, he says, the lowest in the kingdom of heaven can, of heaven can be greater. In other words, he says, as followers of Jesus, we each, ha- we each have the divine, divinely given, spirit-empowered potential for greatness in God's kingdom. So, this week, if you call yourself a Christian, here's the deal. Go practice your spiritual habits and go point people to Jesus. And be aware of that mission in your life and be authentic and be committed to the truth and be humble and be low maintenance and you will be great in God's eyes. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for... Um, the life of John and the, the, the model that he gave us of true greatness, one of humility, true humility. And, um, and that, 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 that statement that he made that Jesus must become greater and we must become less um, should really be the, the summary of our lives, the purpose of our lives. And I ask that that would be true. And I ask God that you would help us uh, trust you in all things, to be low maintenance, to kind of uh, give us the strength to curb the entitlement and the the deserving attitudes that haunt us and plague us. Uh, But may we we trust you in all things and in the process point people to you, a God who has given us life everlasting. We celebrate that this morning. We celebrate you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.